whenever I announce that I'm going to speak on envy, there's this collective sigh in the room. Ah, missed me. It's the most common problem nobody's got. But we're all thinking of five people that need that book. <laughs> so I invite you to open your hands. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would speak now to each one of us personally from your heart this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just come right out of the gate this morning and just, just say it. I have a problem with envy. You know what? God's working in your life like he has been in my life. When this happened to me 19 years ago, and some of you might understand this, when the fire gets turned up in your life, God messes with everything. And one of the things he's showing me is this thing of envy in my heart. And one of the things that I hope to do this morning is to make it easy to confess. Because it's not so easy to confess a problem with envy. Because if I say I have a problem with envy, I'm confessing several other issues at the same time that I don't want to admit. I'm confessing that I have an identity issue. I'm really not established in my identity in Christ. I have a gratefulness issue. I'm not really thankful for what God has given me. And I have a competitive issue. And none of us wants to think that we are, uh, that we function in competition with one another. And so we don't want to call it envy, but I'm hoping I can make it easy to confess and I want to just try to de demystify it this morning because if we can just confess it we're about 95% of the way to victory now I'm not ministering on this topic this morning because I've mastered envy I've just become a faster repenter I want to know there's some stuff in life you don't ever conquer. You just learn how to become a faster repenter. I'm in the airport one day, uh, Memphis. It's a hub like Detroit. And so I landed. I'm going to be taken off. And I walk through the food court. And I notice there's this group in the food court. And they're traveling together. And they all have a copy of a certain book in their hand. And it grips my interest. And they're, you know, they're, they're opening their book and they're, they're engaging in conversation. They're kind of animated. And I can tell they've got some energy about this book they have in their hands. And I'm curious, what book is that? 
So I kind of, you know, kind of make my way, you know, a little detour, and I'm checking out. Has anybody ever heard the name Rick Warren? Purpose-driven life. And as soon as I I identified the book, something happens inside of me. I'm standing in the airport going, I have a problem with Rick Warren. I've never met this man. I've never heard this man. I don't, if he walked past me, I wouldn't know who he is. And I'm like, and I'm standing in the Memphis airport having to repent. I mean, I am not enjoying this right now, Lord. What is this thing inside of me? Because it wasn't my book. (laughs) Does anybody here subscribe to Charisma Magazine? Anybody willing to confess that? (laughs) Okay, I'll tell you the truth, Bill. I don't get charisma for the articles. I get it for the ads. I flip through and I'm I'm checking out the who's who of the who's where and who's doing the what, which, who, what, you know, and I'm reading the the pictures and the names and the, and you know, and you're, you're going through Charisma Magazine and you're like, Revival breaks out in Florida, and you're going, praise God, they need it. <laughs> you're going through, and revival breaks out in California, and you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. If ever a place needed it, it's California. <laughs> you're flipping through, revival breaks out in Detroit. Suddenly, your discernment skyrockets. Who is this? <laughs> oh, it's them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did I come to the right place today? I'm not <laughs> <clears throat> so let, let me give you a definition of envy that I like to work with because it's short. Four words. Envy is distress over another's success. And envy kind of works out of a mentality of a limited resource pool. Envy thinks like this. There's only so many people going to go to a local church on a Sunday morning in Detroit. So if their ministry is mushrooming, 
They're getting them from somewhere. Maybe from me. And so envy works with this idea of a limited resource pool. Envy kind of thinks like this. There's only going to be one person on that piano on Sunday morning. And if she's up there, I'm not. There's only going to be one person on that drum set this Sunday. And if he's in, I'm out. So envy works from this idea of limited resource. But in the kingdom of God, there is no limitation. We serve a God of unlimited resource. And somebody else's gifting does not hinder your gifting in the kingdom of God. God has a sphere for you. Envy is deadly. It killed Jesus the first time around, and it's still killing him today. And it's a hider. Envy doesn't just come out and just say, oh, it's me, it's envy. Envy hides under other noble motivations. Let me illustrate a pastor invites Jesus to speak in his church. So Jesus comes to the guy's church and he notices in the middle of the meeting, he notices this woman that is bowed, bowed over with an infirmity in her back. He heals her. and But it happened to be on a Sabbath. And so the pastor gets up and he says, we honor the Sabbath in this church. If you want to get healed, you there's six days of the week you can get healed, but we don't do this stuff in this church on the Lord on Sabbath. We honor the Sabbath. Jesus turns to the guy and says to him, Hypocrite. Why? Because in 15 minutes, Jesus had more spiritual authority with his congregation than that pastor had after 30 years of ministry. Envy. So it masquerade sometimes as a noble virtue on the surface it appears oh I've, I've just got this noble you know zeal whatever and under, underneath oftentimes can be envy now envy it's as old as the hills it's been with us since Cain and Abel envy is an issue among the brothers just turn to your neighbor and say it's the brothers Sisters are going, it's the brothers. 
Now, when I say brothers, I want to explain what I mean. I mean those who function in the same sphere. Let me illustrate. Most pastors don't envy Billy Graham. Most pastors tend to think like this. Here's me. Here's Billy Graham. Most pastors tend to envy other pastors. Same sphere. Most worship leaders don't tend to envy their pastor. Most worship leaders tend to think like this. Here's me. Here's my pastor. Most worship leaders envy other worship leaders. Most worship team members don't envy their worship leader. The worship team members are thinking like this. Here's me. Here's my worship leader. Worship team members envy other worship team members. Envy functions among the brothers. It's an issue of Cain and Abel, of Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. It's Joseph and his. It's Jesus and his. Envy is an issue among the brothers. But just in case you thought that I was gender uh, specific, let's just say it. It's an issue of the sisters. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's the sisters. It's Sarah and Hagar. It's Rachel and Leah. It's Hannah and Peninnah. It's the sisters. And envy never surfaces until you have an occasion. What's the occasion? Well, God just blesses your brother. When your brother was hurting, you hurt with a man. I mean, you got in the harness with him, you prayed, you cried out to God, you wept with him, and then when God answered your prayer, blessed him, delivered him, and promoted him. And now something else is rising up now. And I discovered it was easier to weep with those that weep than it was to rejoice with those that rejoice. Well, what, what I'm going to do uh, this, this morning is, um, okay, I'm, I'm going to pick on the worship ministry a little bit. Don't take it personal. What I'm about to do with the worship ministry, it actually applies to every area of church life. 
but I find it easy to pick on the worship ministry, number one, because that's my, my DNA. But because, uh, you, know, you know, you understand Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. When it comes to the worship ministry, the degree of talentedness, you can almost put a number on it. Because in the whole music arena, musical giftedness, you can almost attach a number to it. So a good music guy, a good worship guy, you know, a chief musician, could probably take his whole worship ministry, line them up on the platform according to level of gifting from high to low. You can almost like line them up because when it comes to music, the giftings almost have a mathematical number on them. 4.7, 4.1. She's a 3.7. He's a 3.4. She's a 2.8. Those are the 2.6 twins. I mean, you, you know, you, you, could, you could almost put numbers on people's musical giftings. And so the whole area of envy and comparison and that whole thing uh, is easy to measure in the ministry of worship. So if I'm picking on you, don't take it personally. It's actually applying to all of us this morning. But here's what the Lord does. He, he gives out talents of five. It's almost this random, indiscriminate kind of thing that just like one, whatever. It's like, and and you know we're over here going like, hey, why did I get what I got? Why did my sister get all the looks? Why did my brother get all the personality? Why did my sister get all the brains? And we're we're kind of like, gee, where was I when the talents were being handed out? You know, <laughs> and, and it, it's almost this random, arbitrary sort of. You just kind of ah, you get what you get, and then God throws you all on the same worship team. It's a recipe for catastrophe. Now you got one talent, two talent, five talent, all on the same team. It's a divine setup. I mean, this thing is a train wreck waiting to happen. Okay, let me let me break it down. Has anybody here ever started a ministry from scratch? Pioneered? Maybe a, you you pioneered. You planted a church. You planted a home group. You started a ministry from scratch. Anybody ever done anything like that? You guys are going to connect with me. Okay, um, Tim, I think you you planted your church. 
when you plant a church from nothing, you thank God for every one talent person that crawls through that door. I mean, when you're starting out, you don't have filters, you don't have job descriptions, you don't have criteria. You're just like, do you breathe? <laughs> and, and unlike Pastor Bill, you don't care if they sleep. Come in and sleep. Just fill a place in a chair. And, and, and so when you, when you first start a ministry, man, you celebrate every single tiny talent that comes in that door. Sister comes in, she says, I can dust. I mean, you start spinning in circles. You can dust. You're in charge of our dusting ministry. I mean, you, you celebrate every little thing that you got when you launch from nothing. And it's the same way when, when you launch a church. And Tim, I haven't talked to you about it. But when you launch a church... Okay, we, we've got to get a worship thing going here. What are we going to do? Well, you take any and every volunteer. When you start, it's like, you know, this one guy says, I have a Czechoslovakian three-stringed banjo. It was handed down to me by my great-great-grandfather. It's not possible to buy strings for it. And I haven't played it for 30 years. But I can bring my banjo. You're like, get your banjo up, brother. Dust that thing off and let's see it. A guy comes, he says, I used to play trombone in eighth grade band. And I don't know why I've still got the thing. And you're like, go find that trombone. A gal comes and she says, I know how to play auto harp. Does anybody know what an auto harp is? Okay, bad illustration. Guy says, yeah, uh, I can do tambourine. I don't know why, Andrew, but it's just a rule somewhere. You cannot start a worship ministry without a tambourine. <laughs> just, just resign yourself to it. Somebody's going to bring their tambourine. I have a personal fantasy. Collect all the tambourines of the world and have a bonfire.
this guy says to you, I, I play guitar. He says, I know three chords. I know a G chord, I know a D chord, and I know a C chord. And you go, you know three chords? You're our chief musician. So there they are on the platform. All right, Gabriel, you got to see this, okay? This motley crew on Sunday morning, it's, I mean, it's, it is a joyful sound. It's a, it's a joyful noise. Joyful noise. And everybody bring it, you know, one guy plays the comb. <laughs> but here we are, and we are, we're launching our new church. And that thing is stumbling along, and then one Sunday morning, it happens. In the door walks you. And you have two talents. You look at that train wreck on the platform. <laughs> yeah. Come for such a time as this. You make an appointment with the pastor. You show him your two talents. His eyes get big like saucers. We've been praying for you. You're on the platform so fast you're dizzy. I mean, you are there next Sunday. You're up there, man. And now you're in charge of this worship ministry. Things are going to be a little different around here now. Okay. We're going to have a practice. Practice? What would we do at a practice? <laughs> You come Saturday night, you'll find out. So they come to the practice and you're like, we're going to use chord sheets. What's a chord sheet? Well, here, we'll break it down. It's got the words, it's got the chords. And we're going to alphabetize our songs. I mean, this thing starts coming together. Your gifting, your talent, your anointing, and that, and bone starts coming to bone, and flesh starts coming on that thing, and the excellence of the worship ministry starts to grow, and everyone in the house notices it. Whoa. The presence of God starts to be manifest in ways we've never experienced and stuff is happening in our meetings and your little church grows 50, 75. You break the 100 barrier, 125. This thing is starting to happen and everybody remembers the day you came to this church. And you are fulfilled. I mean, this is what I was born for. I have found my
my niche. I'm finally being fruitful in the kingdom of God. And then it happens. In the door, some Sunday morning, walks five talents. Go back to the pit from whence thou didst crawl. Because you know if the pastor sees her five talents, she'll be up there, you'll be gone, the church will forget your name, she'll be the new savior of the church. Envy. It's growing pains. Every growing ministry has these growing pains, and it happens in every department of a church, every area of ministry. As the ministry grows, these dynamics surface, and it gives us lots of opportunity for character development as issues of envy surface. And the five talent guys, Andrew, they're, they're, the five talent guys are going, can we lighten the ship here a little bit? Can we get rid of some of this dead weight? Because if I could just get rid of some of these one talent people here on this team, man, could our ministry take off. We would really soar. So five talent people... They just want to cut loose all the dead weight and take off. One telling people, Barry, the one telling person's going, if you think that I'm going to stand on this platform next to her and sing next to her, I'm too smart for that. I was willing to sing in this church when it was me and Jim. But now with her on the platform now, I think I'll just sit down. Thank you very much. And one talent people, Barry. Two talent people. How many relate to the two talent people. How many here feel like there's people less talented than me and there's people more talented than me and I'm just kind of like that, you know, that middle ground and the issue for us is envy. And I say to the five talent people, what our calling in God is, the five talent people are not called to cut off the one talent people. They are called to equip and train and empower and mobilize the one talent people. Because my conviction
conviction is we are not going to win this war on the strengths of the five talent people. We're going to win this war on a one talent army that is mobilized and empowered by the five talent people in our midst. So the five talent people are called to equip and train and raise up and the one talent people you gotta dig that thing up, clean it off, and use what you've got in the kingdom of God. And then for the rest of us, we have to deal with our envy. Does anybody here have an older brother? Me too. I have an older brother. There's just the two of us. He's older than me. He's got more hair than me. He's taller than me. Stronger than me. Plays piano better than me. More educated than me. Uh, all my life going up and growing up, coming up through school, because I followed my brother three grades later. Every grade I'd come to, Oh, you're Sheldon's brother. He went before by scarfing up all the academic achievement awards. <laughs> and I followed after. I was the fun-loving, let's play. And, and so now, I'm, you know, if all my life I've been like, you know, coming behind in my brother's footsteps. So, I know what it's like to have an older brother who's smarter than you, more gifted than you. Uh, he, he just beat me at golf yesterday uh, in Pittsburgh. I mean, the guy does everything better than me. I got better grandkids. I said that, but it's the truth. <laughs> so I know what it's like to live under the shadow of an older brother. Question. Can you imagine having Jesus as your older brother? Imagine being raised in that house. I mean, he never says, I was wrong. Everybody loves him. He remembers everything. 
I mean, I can't imagine having Jesus as your older brother. How many would acknowledge with me he was a five-talent guy? Jesus had four younger brothers, half-brothers. They were raised with him. Question, what kind of a transition would you have to make in your thinking to come to the conclusion that your brother created the universe? That's what happened. That's right. My brother created the universe. That's pretty big. I mean, my brother's good. But he ain't that good. And Jesus' brother's had a problem. They could not accept who he was. They couldn't make the transition. It was just too big. I'm going to read a scripture right now. And here's a quiz for all the Bible scholars in our midst. I want you to tell me, if you can, who wrote these words. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Jesus' younger brother. It was Jesus. Next came James. Then three other brothers, James 3.16. When James wrote those words, he was talking from experience, brother. He was like, guys, this thing nearly ate my lunch. And now, from the crucible of having to walk through this thing, he has a warning for us where envy and self-seeking exist confusion and every evil thing are there. Beloved, are you hearing a warning in the spirit this morning? We have got to deal with this issue of envy in Detroit. Beloved, it is essential in the kingdom of God, lest evil and confusion abound as we relate to one another in our ministries, God help us to hear this. And one of the ways God deals with envy, he crucifies the brother being envied. Uh, Joseph, I noticed your brothers have a problem with you. Well, yeah, they have a problem with Joseph. He, he blabs his dreams in public. And now the brothers, yeah, the dreamer. 
God's going, Ah, Joseph, I, I noticed your brothers have a problem with you. Hmm. How shall we deal with their envy? I know. We'll crucify you. And so now Joseph sent to Egypt a slave and a prisoner in an Egyptian prison. And because of what he had to endure and walk through, he actually earned the credibility through his crucifixion so that at the end of the story, his brothers are able to vow to his leadership because of the journey he had walked. Uh, David, I'm noticing here, your brothers have a problem with you. Well, yeah, no kidding. I mean, you know what Samuel did. Samuel takes David. Okay, David, uh, let's get your brothers here. Are all the brothers here? Get all the brothers in a circle, please. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six. We're all here, okay. Now, I'm going to anoint you as the next king of Israel. That's what Samuel did. I'm like, bad move. (laughs) Samuel, what were you thinking? You just set this young kid up for disaster. I mean... Do the kid a favor. Take him into a side room somewhere and have a private anointing. Samuel's like, no, I think we'll do it right here in the midst of his brother. So let's get all the brothers around here and let's anoint him. Let's anoint him king in the presence of his brothers. And now his brothers have an issue. So, David, I see that your brothers don't want to acknowledge your leadership. What shall we do? We'll crucify you. And so now, David, running for his life for years in a wilderness, in caves and strongholds, God's crucifying David so that by the time the story's finished, his brothers can acknowledge his leadership in their lives. Uh, Jesus, I'm noticing something. Your brothers have a problem with you. Here's what we'll do. We'll crucify you. Now, the Bible doesn't say it specifically, but my personal conviction is Jesus' brothers were present at the crucifixion. It was a Passover feast. They would have been in Jerusalem, guaranteed. And with Jesus being crucified that day on that hill, I can almost promise you his brothers were in the crowd. And something happened in the heart of Jesus' brothers when they saw him crucified. They said to themselves, perhaps something like this, you know, I've had my issues with him. 
but he doesn't deserve this. And the crucifixion empowered them somehow so that ten days later in the upper room with the 120 are Jesus' mother and his brothers. And the cross empowered them to make the transition. So I'm like, Lord, if my brother envies me, shouldn't you crucify him? <laughs> and the Lord says, no, I'm going to crucify you. Because if you can catch this, the Lord never makes the pathway to greater fruitfulness enviable. I'm thinking of Caleb right now. Caleb is the guy in the Bible that got a raw deal. Caleb has faith to go into the land. He's one of the 12 spies. He's got faith to go in, but because they don't, he has to do 40 years in the wilderness with them. I'm like, oh, uh, that's a raw deal. The Lord said, well, Take one more look at the story. So I'm, I'm looking at Caleb's story. By the time they had done the 40 years in the wilderness and they come out to the other side and now they're in Canaan and, and Joshua is giving out land to everybody. And, he's, and he says, here, you get a house in a field, you get a house in a field, you get a house in a field, you get a house on a wall, you get a house in a field. Everybody's getting their peace. It's Caleb's turn. Caleb goes, uh, uh, I don't want a house in a field. I want more. Because when you've just done 40 years in a wilderness, 40 years in a wilderness has a way of changing what you ask for. I used to be thinking this, but now I'm thinking this. I could have settled for a house in a field 40 years ago, but I've just come through this confounded wilderness, and I want more. Somebody says, who does Caleb think he is asking for a mountain? Nobody said squat. You know what they said? Caleb wants a mountain. Give him a mountain. Why? Because he did the time. He did the time in the wilderness. And by walking in faith through the wilderness for 40 years, he bought the authority with God and the credibility with man to take an entire mountain in the grace of God. I can imagine the Lord saying to Caleb in his heart, I can imagine when they first came to the land, I can imagine the Lord saying, Caleb, man, I like you. You're, you're my man. But 
I want to give you so much more than you're thinking right now. Caleb, I want to give you a mountain in the promised land. But if I give it to you now, there will be an outcry in the land. Everybody will be up in arms. It will seem so unfair. So here's what I'll do, Caleb. I'll take you through 40 years in the wilderness. And by the time it's finished, nobody will have an issue when I give you your mountain. Why? Because God does not make the pathway to greater exploits enviable. He will take you in a journey with him such that others will look at it and say, Help yourself. God bless you, bro. You might recall that time when the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees get into a little spat, a little dialogue, and and uh, the, the 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 Pharisees are a little frustrated, so they're they're going to try to, you know work the thing a little bit and so they said hey did you guys know that the guy that your master baptized that Jesus of Nazareth guy did you know that he is now holding revival meetings just like your master only a little space over and did you know that everybody is leaving your master's meetings and going to his meetings and the Pharisees are trying to like work that envy thing, you know, like let's use the you know leverage on this thing. And John's disciples come to John and they say, "Guess what? We just found out. We just found out why our offerings are plummeting. Everybody's leaving your meetings, John, and going to his meetings." John's response is classic. A man can only receive what has been given to him from heaven. And John said, now my joy is complete. God gave it to him, and I rejoice in that. My meetings are shriveling, his meetings are exploding, and my joy is complete. Beloved, let us resolve in our hearts right now, I am going to celebrate everything that heaven gives to somebody else. If heaven gives it to you, I'm going to rejoice with you. I'm going to celebrate it with you. I'm going to bless it. I'm going to protect it. I'm going to champion it. Because why? Heaven has given it to you. When Jesus died, he descended to hell and he broke loose the chains that held the captives in hell in order that he could ascend out of hell with captivity now captive. And he gave gifts to men. It was his cross that won for us the ability to be gifted from heaven. God forbid that I should look at the thing for which Christ 
Christ died. And because of my puny, constricted, insecure heart, now come into an envious competition with others who have been gifted by God. Jesus died to give you that gift. And I say thanks be to God that now Jesus can give these kind of gifts to the body of Christ and I will celebrate them because heaven has given it to you. One concluding verse, please. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love does not envy. Lord Jesus, would you perfect us in the love of Christ? Would you satisfy our hearts in your love? Would you fill us with the love of Jesus? Settle our identity in who we are that we might be able to love one another with the love of Christ. Let me close with one simple thought. One thought, Bill, and I'm done. You do not need to be limited by your talents, by your gifts. There is another dimension in the kingdom that goes beyond gifting. Illustration, Joseph. Joseph was a five-talent guy. Would you admit that? Would you agree? A five-talent guy, but God said to Joseph, Joseph, if I leave you alone, your five talents will never be able to accomplish what I have for you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shut your talents down. And God put him in a prison where his talents were useless. When you're in prison, I don't care what kind of business skills you got. You're in prison. I don't care, Joseph, what kind of personality giftings you got. I don't care what charisma levels you've got. I don't care how gifted and how you know how many gifts you got. You're in prison. And now Joseph found himself in a place where all his giftings were useless. And he's like, God, see, I don't care how gifted you are. Your giftings will never get you out of prison. And now Joseph in a place where his giftings will not get him out of this pit. God, you got to talk to me. I'm going to die in this prison. And God's just going, my deeper son. God, I've got to find you. Lord, Lord says, go deeper, boy. And Joseph starts putting roots down into the depths of the heart of God like he never had to in his freedom. But now, God, I have to find you. Talk to me. And God's just like, deeper, son. And Joseph put down roots in God until I believe he found the river. There is a river in the kingdom that is not by might, not by power, not by gifting, not by ability. It is by the Spirit of the Lord. And because Joseph found that river, he was able to be launched into a world platform. And 
And what God released him into, he did not do it because of his gifting. He did it because he found a river in God that was based in a flow of the Spirit of God. One last person I want to mention, Anna. If Joseph represents the five-talent person, Anna in the New Testament for me represents the one-talent person. A one-talent mom. Well, that's what she wanted to be. Anna, this young gal that says, you know, Lord, there's only one thing that I think I can do. I think I can be a wife and a mom. And then God comes and strips from her the life of her husband. And now, God, the one thing that I thought I could do, be a wife and a mom, and you've taken that away from me. And Anna has a choice. Get bitter or go deep. And she says, God, talk to me. And the Lord's like, deeper, Anna. God, I've got to hear your voice. You've just devastated my life. Deeper, Anna. Anna starts putting her roots down into that same river. And I believe there came a day when she heard the voice. Okay, Lord. In the temple, night and day, fasting and ooh. Okay, here we go, seven times hotter. And she started coming after the heart of God in fasting and prayer day and night. Weeks turned to months, turned to years. And again, the voice, Messiah, Messiah. Is that what this is about, Messiah? And she starts entering into a travail in the Holy Spirit, giving birth through her intercessory ministry until the day comes when she holds her hand, that which she had travailed over for years, and she held the Messiah in her hand. And a little woman that thought that her life was devastated and over and barren and fruitless because she found a river in God. A little one-talent gal becomes a fruitful mother to millions. And now all of us look at Anna as a spiritual mom. My point is, you might think you got one little squatty talent. What am I going to do with this one little thing? You do not need to be limited to your one little talent. There is another dimension in the kingdom, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Stand with me, Lord Jesus. I ask that you would help us to find this kind of river in the kingdom of God that is not based on talents, that is not based on gifting, that is not based on strength, on personality, that is based, Lord, on finding a living, abiding, intimate, loving relationship with you, a flowing river of the Spirit of God. Lord, I'm asking you to give me that Joseph River. I'm asking you, give me that Anna River. I'm asking you, Lord, help me to find a dimension in you that is not based on my talentedness, but is based on the power of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.